Hey there. In honor of spring break, Reed and I are taking this week off to spend some time with our family. To that end, we're going to be running one of our most popular episodes from last year, which is entitled Meeting the New Digital Consumer's Expectations. You know, as new digital health consumers continue to familiarize and trust digital health solutions, health systems need to focus on some of those solutions to help improve that overall experience. In this episode, Reed and I get into discussing some of the elements of what that means, that is a good digital health experience. And then we're joined by Chris Gervais of Kairos, who shares how patient access solutions are evolving as we move into whatever is the new post-pandemic normal. So sit back and enjoy this repeat episode, and we will be back next week with a brand new show. It seems to be a common theme with our cold opens, Reed. Pepsi introduced a Peeps-flavored soda. Just in time for the holidays. I was just thinking that's exactly what I needed was uh, something Peep flavored. Instead of grabbing for that ice cold Pepsi, you're not going to grab for an ice cold Peeps flavored Pepsi. I'm not going to reach for a Pepsi in general, much less uh, Peeps. I don't know. Maybe it's better. Some of the reviews I said, it tastes like you're drinking Peeps. So I'm not sure if that's better or worse. I'm pretty sure it's worse. If you're not in the mood for a Peeps-flavored Pepsi, never fear, Oscar Mayer is releasing bacon-scented shoelaces. Yeah, that's what you need, especially when everybody like won't keep their dog on a leash. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 217, 217 of Touchpoint. You are listening to Chris Boyer and Reed Smith as always. Good thing you can only listen to us and not have a scratch and sniff Touchpoint podcast. That's right. Bacon scented microphone <laughs> is what I got. <laughs> that somehow sounds good, though. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a bacon wrapped microphone. Now, there you go. Now you're talking. I mean, it's not, it's not crazy. <laughs> um, well, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for uh, joining us for another week of Touchpoint. We certainly appreciate the support. If you will, take a minute to rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to be listening. Visit the sponsors, tell them we sent you. All super, super helpful. Do you want to point out the website, touchpoint.health? And I'm pointing it out for two reasons. One, we have a new show. So new show alert hosted by my good friend, Dr. Bonnie Clipper. Uh, she is a registered nurse, former VP of innovation for the American Nursing Association, and really, really big in the innovation space. So many of you may actually already follow her on LinkedIn. She's got a, a pretty large uh, tribe there. But she just launched a show on the Touchpoint Network called Healthcare Soothsayers. So a little bit about uh, if you had a crystal ball, what do you see coming? Conversations. And so the first one of those has just launched. So you can go out and check that out on the website. And while you're subscribing, subscribe to her show. Wherever you happen to be listening, you can find it in all the relevant places as well. And while you're there checking out her show, sign up for the TPS Report Weekly Newsletter. It comes out every Monday morning, five articles couple of tweets and some links to some industry conferences. So a great way to start your week. Simple read, quick read, but a lot of great insight to uh, draw to your attention. So we'll take a brief pause while you go do that, and we'll be right back. 
Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, Reed, we're going to be talking about how we as healthcare organizations can better meet our new digital consumers' expectations. It seems like we talk about this a lot, and it's very important for us to kind of center our digital strategies around the consumer. At least that's how I feel. I think we're seeing more and more of that. I think we've said it for a long time with the consumer being kind of the focus, and the consumer could be, you know, again, defining what consumer is or means. It could be more of a B2B play, right? Like uh, referring physicians, for example, it could be patients, potential patients could be the caregivers of patients, you know, like their family members and things like that. So that centricity around the consumer is important. And we're starting to, to see more and more people head that way as uh, things have changed again, quite a bit over the last 12 months or so. Well, and while it's important for us to meet those expectations, actually doing that is a whole nother matter entirely. Yeah, I mean, de- devil's in the details, right? For sure. How do we better understand our voice of customer? How do we develop systems so we can start to get their input into what we're doing? How do we build measurement so that we can actually get insights into their needs and expectations? Think about interoperability comes to mind. You know, is it just, it's just, we talk about the tools and the technology and all these types of things that help and aid in this effort. That's not necessarily easy because, you know, we're, we're reorging the way that we function. There's been an attempt to kind of define digital front door strategy. That concept is really hard to define and articulate and even harder to execute against. We found an article that a friend of the show, Dave Dalton, posted that might be a good place for us to start, right? Yeah, it's from uh, corporateinsight.com titled, A Great Digital Healthcare Consumer Experience is Critical for Healthcare Organizations to Meet and Exceed User Expectations. Obviously, digital healthcare consumer experience is shifting. Thanks to a couple of things. One, regulatory challenges. Also, consumer centricity. The drivers of consumer centricity are driving in this whole idea of the customer experience being at the center of everything. Another big trend, uh, the current landscape of the industry, they say, is undergoing a transition from the fee-for-service towards the value-based care model. We've heard a lot about that over recent years, of course. All the new incumbent health companies, the big tech and other disruptors that are coming into our marketplace, they're basically advancing what a digital health experience could look like because they've been focused on that in other sectors before, and they're bringing all of that in, intuitive navigations, personalized features, design aesthetics, everything kind of centered around user experience design. And finally, they talk about the fact that all this is raised to the consumer's expectation. 
and level of engagement for that matter. What are some of the influences the pandemic has had for us? The new challenges that they point out, things like telehealth services and the related resources such as symptom checkers, test facility finders are increasingly popular and necessary, they say, to keep the U.S. healthcare infrastructure afloat. What it's done is is, is had people rely on these online tools. A variety of online tools. We're not only alerts, notifications, patient vaccine apps that now let you know when it's your turn in line, so to speak, dedicated COVID-19 pages, resource centers, even heard some chat bots dedicated to answering these questions. All of these things have kind of like driven this whole flurry of a lot of information that we're sharing. Yeah. Friends over at Loyal actually did a nice job with their guide product, creating a free kind of COVID specific chat bot. So yeah, you're starting to see all these types of things. They say also that firms are addressing an urgent need for a safer care delivery by rapidly expanding their telehealth capabilities. And again, we saw that with all of our clients, certainly. And some of that was, well, how, how can we do this you know, most quickly? So it was less about telehealth platforms and more about can we use Microsoft Teams for this or Skype or you know, whatever, the, whatever the platform may be, FaceTime, et cetera. So this company, uh, CorporateInsight.com, they did a survey, and they, what they found is that consumer satisfaction around digital healthcare experience is potentially dropping precipitously. They actually outline a couple of things to allow us to understand where those, those pain points are, and they actually serve as a really great focused approach for us to talk about some of those changes that if you're concerned about your digital healthcare customer experience ways that you could start to meet those. So let's dive into those, Reed. What's the first one? Websites. So we're still talking about websites, huh? (laughs) I feel like I'm like the Allen Iverson about the practice thing. Anyway, sorry. They say that healthcare organizations must meet the user's expectation for high quality uh, website functionality. And so, again, this is back to this idea of what people are used to in their the rest of their online life when they go to the Lowe's or Home Depot website or they go to their kids' school district or the HOA or whatever, but they expect to, you know, one, easily be able to navigate uh, the site, you know, that again, table stakes, some simple health management capabilities, online resources, tools, design, navigation, all that kind of stuff are, are huge determinators of, of the success of the sites themselves and ultimately the organization. Uh, but people want these things to be a utility. Absolutely. More and more utility. I think we said this in episode two of our show. People don't come to hospital websites just for fun. They're there to do things. And so we want to make sure they do that. Some of the things they actually outline from the survey here is claims filing. Now, keep in mind, they also interviewed people about their experience with insurance companies. So that's probably why claims filing came Ooh, in boy. here. Appointment scheduling, payment methods, cost estimators, and locator tools. These are features that in their survey, the respondents said are very important to them. That would make sense. What's next on the list? Well, next on the list is mobile innovation. Interesting. They actually are leading us to the conclusion that mobile app usage is starting to increase. Now, again, keep in mind, Uh they're surveying people of healthcare providers as well as insurance providers. But they say as, as the online engagement and expectations rise, mobile app usage increases as well. But the challenge is, is that many apps have less than desirable experiences. 
Are we going to go back to I need a nap conversation now? <laughs> Where is see, I'm scanning through here. Are QR codes on the list? <laughs> well, they actually outlined three major digital touch points that could keep consumers engaged and proactive with an app. And I think this is really important. So like, let's, let's hone in here for just a second, because I do feel like the utility of, of an app, I kid a little bit, but the utility of an app is, is smart, but if it's got to be built with a certain outcome in mind, right? So the first thing that they point out here uh, is that technologies to measure activity by offering health improvement goals, harnessing community and offering rewards to get people engaged, there has to be some sort of gamification to it. Right. Let's, there, you got to have the badges and, and Peloton's done a really good job with this. Oh, three days in a row, five days in a row, seven days in a row. And you get the badge and you sign up for challenges each month because th- they know people are motivated by those types of things or certain types of people are at least. Yeah, I think the motivation there is around tracking your progress and actually aligning it to some kind of success measurement. Going into your patient portal and making an appointment, that's a very simple use case here. But what they're talking about is health improvement goals and and having the, the providers kind of align around setting up goals that you could use apps for to track progress towards. And I mentioned the providers because that's part of the second point here that we can hone in on. Using advanced patient care by fostering more collaboration between not only users of the app, but members uh, of their, their care teams, healthcare professionals, using it as a way to interact and collaborate and have communications along with your care. Not just doing the simple send a message to your provider, but are there ways that you could actually collaborate within an app? I mean, I like that idea. I mean, the collaboration piece is, is a big one, certainly, and it allows that kind of stickiness, right? They also point out as a third or third piece here is in-app pharmacy capabilities. Boy, that seems like a big lift. But I think that idea of being able to locate, in this case, a pharmacy, drug cost estimators, prescription management tools are all things that they point out would be huge, uh, huge opportunities, especially an aging population with additional medications. And, uh, you know, this is like the little row of pill boxes on what you take on each day and kind of, a, you know, that kind of utility makes sense to me on, on how something like this could be useful. Yeah, let's clue in on that word that you used, utility. If we focus in on utility, what are the top uses of this app? If you can articulate those very clearly and make that experience that much better. In this case, in-app pharmacy, absolutely. But, you know, it could be other things that might be relevant to whoever's using that app. Very interesting. I like this kind of focus area. So, of course, the next thing on their overall list of things that you want to keep in track of outside of websites and mobile is your EMR and your patient portal. Oh, pass. Hard pass. <laughs> I thought that was somebody in IT's job. But they say patient portals, you know, they most of them today offer basic functionality, but they lack certain digital capabilities that could enhance that experience. Man, it's such a hard one because it includes the entire organization. Right. So, I mean, they, they point out in here, obviously, the health systems and, and hospital patient portals are lagging with less innovation. Not a huge leap there, but that patient portals currently offer basic functionality, which is true, 
uh, but lack certain digital capabilities that would really enhance probably utilization, uh, certainly the experience of it, but the engagement of the tool itself. Let's clue in on some of the ones that they outline here. They, they say direct online scheduling capabilities. Forget this. Both current patients as well as not current patients. It's people coming to your website, for example. Whoa. So you have to open that up. You have to open up your services now that you can make it easier for people. Anything you can do to make things easier. Because they say here, most people find making an appointment over the phone cumbersome and time-consuming. Who wants to call anybody? Nobody wants to call anybody. (laughs) I mean, seriously, you think about like my 13-year-old son. He... Never. I don't know that he's ever made a phone call. Like it just doesn't happen. You know, they text, they do stuff through Instagram, Snapchat, whatever. If they're going to talk with someone like live conversation, it's via FaceTime. So what does that mean for like telehealth and those types of things? Well, it's probably a good sign that they're going to feel comfortable with that kind of utilization. I think it's interesting that you know, here we are talking about how you use this type of technology to kind of move it forward. We're kind of in this weird interim gap, right? Where it's like, well, he's 13, but here in five, six, eight years, but we don't have five, six, eight years. Exactly. Because every user now is is used to that. There's two other ones that we want to address. One, we don't have to really go into a lot of depth with because we have on this show before. Telehealth, the benefits and the convenience of telehealth, what it could do to make it easier to to access care for those people that have access to telehealth and removing the geographical barriers through remote patient monitoring. All of that stuff is good. What's the last big thing that they actually say you should focus in on? Uh, The idea of transparency, but specifically they call it price transparency. Stars, ratings, all that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly, we, we've talked about that for some years, and there's been some organizations, starting with the University of Utah, that, that did that really well. And we've seen that kind of cascade across to a fair amount, of, especially leading organizations, right, with the star ratings on physician profiles and showing up in search and the benefits. And so we, we won't go super deep into that. But now that there's this federal mandate that there is a cost estimator, so you kind of shopping, if you will, uh, as of the first of this year, where you know we have to make the the pricing, the price transparent or accessible via the hospital website. Why don't we take a brief pause? We'll come back and t- let's drill in on this pricing estimator because something happened over the last week that is very interesting. But we'll get back to that right after the break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front-row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so before the break, we, we touched on the idea of transparency, specifically price transparency is the last piece of this article that we've been going through. And then we want to get to a different article about something that's actually happened, right? So this is, a, this is the idea that uh, is the beginning of this year, January 1st of 2021, 
we had to have our pricing accessible, right? On, on the hospital websites, cost estimators for quote unquote shoppable services. You know, it's interesting to me because one, it's like people have to do this or there's a penalty. And I wonder how many people are just like, you know what, I'll just pay the penalty. (laughs) Or is it even enforceable? There was a lawsuit from the American Hospital Association against the federal government to try to stop this. Because remember, this came in right before COVID. And we basically had the calendar year of 2020 as hospitals and health systems to get this posted. So everybody else was distracted in the health system, but you had your financial people, I guess they were busy tracking down, how do we present shoppable services to meet this federal mandate? So it's just kind of challenging. And by the way, what is what do those numbers yield? And how do we compare in the marketplace, right? There's, there's all these implications. It's, it is very, very interesting. And, and so let, let's, let's jump to this, this next article here. So reverse SEO. So there's not many times I see people not wanting to show up in search results for something that's not like a PR issue. So it's not like they did something bad and therefore they don't want people to find it in the search results. That's not what we're talking about. But this is, I'm going to do something, in this case, put transparency uh, numbers, uh, metrics, uh, shoppable services, pricing, if you will, on the website, but yet I don't want anybody else to find it. And it actually happened. The Wall Street Journal broke the story last week that the shoppable services content, there are hospitals that are actively hiding it from search. They examined more than 31 hospital websites, Read, and they found that hundreds of them are using code that hid the pricing results from Google, as well as other search engines. Well, there you go. I mean, okay. <laughs> it's, I don't really don't know how to respond. I, you know, it's interesting. It's not like they didn't post it, right? Right. It's there. So you can't, you can't find me for it uh, because by the letter of the law, I did what you said I had to do. What they did is they actually put in things like having it not search, not scrollable or searchable by Google or what have you. They can still find it. You have to click through multiple pages to arrive at that data. And it, I mean, obviously, that doesn't feel like a, a white hat strategy, so to speak, right? It feels a little sketchy. Yeah, this kind of goes down that path of like people would put keywords on a page that were like the same color as the background. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, like th- those weird kind of things. Or, hey, if you have uh, a complaint, click here. But it's like super small and in the footer, like down by the copyright or something like you never find it. You know, it's, it's interesting. So, um, but, but in any case, the idea at the beginning of this year certainly was that, you know, the information had to be there, had to be machine readable file, item services, uh, consumer friendly format, uh, which I'm not even sure how you would do that anyway. And, and so, yeah, so now we're just, uh, we, we did all that stuff, but we just made it really hard for you to find. Uh, Shirag Shah, who's an associate professor at University of Washington, told the Wall Street Journal this. The information is technically there, but good luck finding it. And he went on to say, it's one thing not to optimize your site for searchability. It's another thing to tag it so it can't be searched. That's a clear indication of intentionality. It is intentional. 
these are some large names in the space, right? So, I mean, you can go out and read the article and, and all that kind of good stuff. The defense here is that the reason they don't want that to be searchable is because they want you to go through a pathway where they can inform you more effectively before you just land on just a bunch of raw information, raw data. And so I could, without looking at the sites, right, I could see how that might be useful. Like, hey, let me walk you down this path, give you some level of explanation about what you're about to look at before you actually look at it. Okay, maybe. I don't know that that was really the intent, but... I could see how that could potentially be uh, useful. I could see that too. But, I, you know, I it's one of these things. Is that the right way to do it? And obviously, and for other organizations that this Wall Street Journal tagged in their report, they quickly came back and said, oh, we removed that. It was legacy code. So that clearly is something that it just seems a little suspicious. It does. I, you know, the, the short of it is, is this will all sort itself out eventually. I just think it's interesting the way, you know, some of this stuff is progressing. Well, hey, before we get to our interview, let's let's touch on one more thing. Uh, we, we've heard about open notes. Matter of fact, Dr. V, uh, host of the exam room, uh, has had them on the show and interviewed uh, and talked extensively about open notes. And there's a recent article about this open notes uh, rule being delayed until April. He's, he's actually even, Dr. Brian Bartabini is actually quoted in the article. This was written, you know, at the end of last year. So April is like this week. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's happened. We're, ha- we're like, we're like halfway through 2021 already. And so Catherine DeRoche, who's the executive director of open notes indicated that uh, patients have have had the right to see their medical record, but it hasn't been easy. And so this is a huge initiative around transparency to start providing through the patient portal access to all of the notes, the clinical notes, consultation notes, a variety of things, so they could actually access their medical record. Imagine that. Yeah, and there's there's um, what this is actually talking about. This going into effect is is the ability that patients can immediately uh, have access to the consultation notes, the discharge summary, uh, the H and P imaging, lab reports, pathology, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and why would you not be able to? It's your information, right? And I think that's the whole argument here, right? Right, but. What Dr. V said, and we'll, we'll quote him here, and again, go over to our website and, and download that podcast where he actually t- talked about this specifically. He says, I think this is going to force healthcare professionals to help patients think about information and what they will do with it. It will force patients to recognize the difference between information and knowledge and wisdom. I love that sentiment. It's the same thing on the marketing side. We've, we've talked about this and you've said it a n- a numerous times that you know, we're, we're data rich and insight poor. More information is just more information um, without some way to synthesize it and make heads or tails out of it. So should you have access to it? Uh, yeah, it's your, it's your information. It's about you. You know, that kind of thing. I don't think anybody's arguing that. I think his point obviously is you're not going to be equipped to really understand it or make decisions from it in a lot of cases without physicians and these organizations kind of guiding you through what to do with it. And what it means. And that's really the purpose and the intent of what we've been talking about today is not only 
understanding their expectations, but giving them purpose, intent, and context, really, which is a great time for us to kind of pivot now to the interview that we are uh, that we have coming up here. I recently sat down with a good friend of the show, Chris Gervais from Kairos, and he and I had a chance to talk a little bit about what does access mean? We talk about patient access, call centers, you know, that sort of thing. But what is the new approach to access mean for hospitals and health systems? And the conversation took on a whole turn. We, we started talking about the industry, et cetera. It was really fascinating. So after this brief pause, we'll, we'll come back and we'll hear from Chris. And then Reed and I will be back at the end to uh, wrap up the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to be talking with a, a good old friend of ours, a person that's been on the show a couple of times before now, and that's Chris Gervais from Kairos. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm super excited to be here. Well, anytime I can get a Chris on the show, I'm excited. A little joke between Reed and I, we have a lot of guests that have the name Chris. I don't know what that is. Maybe there's a lot of experts named Chris. What do you think, Chris? Uh, maybe, uh, possibly on the expert <laughs> side, I'll, I'll leave that to your listeners for the end of this. <laughs> well, with that, Hey, listen, there may be some people listening in though, that do not know about you or Kairos. Would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and, and the background of the company? Sure thing. So uh, as Chris mentioned, I'm Chris Gervais. I serve as the CTO at Kairos and we're a Boston based patient access company. Uh, and we specialize in, uh, helping health systems reach their patients wherever they are to find the right care. And so we help organize and manage all the provider data, location data, care option data, bring that all into one place. And then through different applications and through um, APIs, uh, allow our customers to build patient experiences so that patients can, on their own terms, find the right provider for them that matches all their preferences and then self-service schedule. So you know they can really do, uh, do whatever they need when they need to, to arrange for the right care. I would characterize your organization as like a, a patient experience organization, right? All the things that you're doing are, are very much kind of looking at how to improve the access to care. And certainly there's a lot of changes in the marketplace around this. Let's, let's start first by talking about some of the changes that we're seeing in the landscape of healthcare. We were all looking in the rearview mirror going, so much changed so quickly, right? And in so many ways, which you know, at the end of the day, it was all in service of, you know, obviously of the patients and trying to help everybody sort of thread the needle through the situation of COVID-19 around, you know, safety and care and, and all those things. And then I think, you know, it was great to see some acceleration of digital enablement in places where it was was happening, but really got to go, you know, fast to keep patients um, connected to their care. You know, certainly as we look forward, that acceleration, you know, it might the velocity might change, right? But but I think the door that's been opened and some of the fundamental consumer expectations that are now not just optional, but really kind of foundational, 
I think really represent uh, such a great opportunity for the health system market to continue to adapt, right? And do the things that it's had to do over time. And just like every other industry, right, we uh, go through that level of, of adaptation to, to meet the moment and, and deal with, you know, looking back at some things that worked for us in the past. And now we get to have the fun of continuing to look forward. You're alluding to a couple of the changes, and I know that there is a report that Kairos recently did about the the changing journey of the of the customer. Are there any high level trends that maybe you could share with our audience that you're seeing from uh, the work that you've done and the research you guys your organization has done? There's a few things that um, continue to stick out for us, right? Which is every year we do our uh, patient access journey report, where we interview about a thousand patients uh, across the country, and you know every year we see. We see things going up and to the right, which you would expect, right? More and more desire to engage digitally through different channels, right? For certain things, we still want to call in. But when we looked, uh, again, not just at the patient access journey, but really dug into like virtual care and things like that, as many people experienced, it was, I think, very welcoming to see the, the rapid adoption of that, but also the challenging of from patients of where they wanted to get care versus where they were kind of just steered in the past. And this this new comfort level of saying, yeah, you know what, I drive by this urgent care clinic every day, this retail clinic, I think I'm just going to, you know, just stop in there, right? And then thinking now about, well, what happens to my data? And where does that data go to? How does it get back to my primary care, right? That's some of the interesting opportunity and change where the number of endpoints, the outlets for care just continues to multiply, both that are health system driven, but a lot of new entrants in the market, right? You're, you're seeing it too. Yeah, well, the entrants are really, uh, they're coming in from all different angles, right? Where I see a lot of disruption happening is in the primary care space. And you even alluded to that, you use that term, right? Retail care. Uh, I see this happening all over the country. Like there's multiple different ways that people can maybe pick up their care at a different location that's not connected to their health system. Or or maybe they, they just said, hey, look, my local Walmart now has this Walmart health component to it. And oh, it's a lot easier. It, you know, I can access it whenever it maybe even is a little cheaper. While that's great on the consumer, that causes a lot of disruption to those of us that like kind of reside in a traditional healthcare model. It does cause disruption. I think it also is forcing a good look at, okay, what's attractive about these other models, right? Um, and what are they doing so well that it is getting you know, consumer mindshare and patient mindshare to go seek out care there. Even if some, sometimes it means, you know, they're commercially insured, but they're still paying out of their own pocket on top of it. And I think what we saw in our research is, you know, especially influenced by the past year, is just the overwhelming indexing on convenience. It was easy for me to find it and schedule it. I could do it on my phone, right? It was just, it's that ease of use and kind of lowering that barrier to entry which is not impossible for health systems to do at all. I mean, many are, you know, investing there. But I think there's also just this, it feels like there's this more willing to, willingness on the maybe consumer or patient side to experiment a little more. And, and I think that's where the both the customer experience, but the investment in brand and awareness of all the different services that someone might not realize a health system has at different convenient outlets, I think really comes into play. You and I both live in sort of like major metropolitan areas, but this is happening in all areas, urban, rural. I mean, all over, healthcare is just being disrupted in many different ways. When you think about sort of the retailization 
I don't like that term so much when we talk about healthcare, but that's really what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Many of these new disruptors that are entering into this marketplace, they have found a way to kind of bring the retail experience to multiple areas of the country, not just in the cities. Is that right? I think that that level of, you know, again, reaching, you know, not just the, to your point, not just the urban areas, but, you know, those exurbs and the smaller towns where up until that point, actually, there had been maybe a bit of a healthcare desert really is something that's tremendously important. Now, suddenly, there are newer opportunities to get actually access to better quality healthcare. And um, at the same time, we've been tracking, Chris, for many years, this sort of like, uh, I would say, this decay of the rural health system or the rural hospital. All of a sudden, we have these colliding factors that are occurring and creating the ideal marketplace for the consumer. They are. And, and then on the, you know, on the business side, you have a lot of um, different entities who continue to look at healthcare to fund new types of care experiences. You know, private equity firms buy up small practices and start to bundle them together. You're seeing VC firms fund, you know, brick and mortar uh, businesses now based on come here for your primary care, pay a low fee, you know, monthly fee, and then a, a per episode fee. And you look at it, and you go like, well, it's actually not that expensive. And then Again, it's easy for me to engage with because it matches like a subscription service that I have for something else in my life. And so those like common sort of like commerce models and expectations, I think it's lowering the barrier to entry, which is great. The flip side is it could create a lot of confusion for patients, right? Especially ones that I think maybe have more specialized care needs, right? And one where a large health system or a health system of good size is going to have that breadth of clinical services and operations that probably would be the next best step for that patient. But how do they get there if they're kind of getting their everyday care somewhere else? Yeah. How do they do that, Chris? Because <laughs> that does sound complex to me, right? As much as I like all these these like kind of easier entries into the marketplace, um, and you know, I even think about it like in a very simple use case, like telehealth, for example, right? I know that many health systems over the past year just rapidly embrace telehealth, but there are organizations that have been in this space for a very long time, offering a much better experience, making it much easier for me. And now I'm sort of that discerning digital healthcare consumer, and I'm like, oh, well, I like this experience a little bit better than this experience. And I'm going to go over here, you know, not realizing that by doing so, the, I, I don't know if chain of command is the right word, but right, the governance of my healthcare data is now suddenly going somewhere else. And I think that's some of the visibility that I think, you know, this year, as we kind of renormalize with work and life and society and, 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 you know, our economy and all that, I think those are really important issues that are going to come, I think, back into the forefront a little bit. Like, you know, what does happen? Like, so I went to these appointments maybe, you know, a year ago, but none of that is showing up in my, you know, my primary care office's EHR. And so like, how do I get that data? And so it's going to, you know, while it's great that we now have mandates around patient data access using standards APIs, right? Wonderful for as a technologist, but we got to make it work. And we got to make it work for patients in a real way that gives them, we should give them this optionality. Or at least I feel like they should have it. You know, as we think about our roles, we need to earn that patient's loyalty, right? And and have that wraparound experience that just makes it so easy and to do business. Just like, you know, buying something on Amazon. You know, I, I, I don't like using the retailization <laughs> of healthcare either. I really don't. 
because it's <laughs> it is it is a special at the end of the day it's a high touch you know industry and delivering care is so personal and it's such a personal decision so how can we use that to give folks more information to make the best ones for them Right. But you mentioned Amazon. And I think that's a good example of because for those of us now sitting on the back end, looking the back end out at this, right, at the complexity of interoperability and things like that, Amazon basically built the platform. And anybody that wants to sell on Amazon has to come into this marketplace and play by their rules, right? Now, we as health systems, we, I'm, you know, I work for a health system, we're, we're sitting here now, we've built these silos of data, right, around our patients. We found it to be very difficult, even, you know, when we're talking about referral, referring to other health systems in our marketplace, there is no, like, universal patient record, so to speak, that's out there. There's no, I guess there are some health information exchanges, but that's a little bit different than, like, the patient record. I like the the, the metaphor of Amazon because, there is no way for us to plug into this big data pool that sets all the standards for us. I don't know if personally, you know, I don't know if that's the right answer, to be honest with you, like plugging into one thing versus, because I, I hate to say this, but plugging into one thing would just be the easiest thing, right? But that doesn't mean it's the right thing. And I do think the ability to federate data, while it sounds hard and difficult, but to be able to, you know, establish relationships that allow data to still be held in places, but to interoperate together, I, I do think is what is, is going to drive this. And again, you, you see a little bit of this, you know, today. So, you know, again, on, on my, I happen to use Apple stuff. So on my iPhone and the health app, I'm able to pull my medical record and labs from three different sources. It all comes into one. I can see it all. It's all organized on my phone and I can see it. Now I can't do anything with it. I can't even favorite my like primary care provider. I can't in there, I can't say like the CVS near me is where I like to pick up prescriptions, but you could start to see where that could go next. And it doesn't require that Apple owns all that data. And it puts the, I, I, you know, puts the patient in control of saying, yep, I had an identity over here, here, and here, still a lot to deal with, but it can be easily pulled together. And I think we're going to have to explore that model for a little while longer because look, you know, you work for a health system and my customers are health systems and what we want to do is help them have the you know have great voices out there and great options so that patients can choose them when it's appropriate i don't really know if the answer is let's just have this big one magical marketplace in the sky you know that everything goes to that is just going to intermediate all these relationships i'm not quite sure we're all ready for that yet I think we're far ways away from that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But again, I'm kind of, I'm trying to think about where the the tipping point will be. And I was thinking about this. Uh, I just recently was reading uh, some information about creating digital health passports. What that means is that for the travel industry, right? They're they're starting to create multiple different ways that you could track, like if you've been vaccinated and where your destination's going, what kind of COVID testing, et cetera, in order to bring back travel. But it's inextricably tied to that person's health information. And the problem is, is there's no standards. There's no consistency. So each individual airline is creating their own digital health passport in order to get back into business, right? That works well if you're loyal to one airline, right? But if you're starting to travel, 
you know, through multiple airlines, which many seasoned travelers have, it becomes really challenging, very challenging, and let alone international travel, which is a whole nother set of standards, if you think about that. That complexity model, that's what we're facing here in health systems as well, right? It, it, no, you're, you're, you, you nailed it. It, it truly is. And I think built into that model, right, is also like, it's not just about the data, it's also how you trust the data. The travel example is great, right? Because you've got all these like American Airlines, air quotes, passport or my JetBlue one or kind of whatever. Today, like the only thing that binds American Airlines and JetBlue together is that all their data is in the Sabre system and it can be available through Expedia or their own website for somebody to book on. But that's really it. They don't share anything else about patients. You know, I do see these, you know, kind of maybe substrate layers where you could get that level of data organized. but it still needs to be expressed in certain ways. And then we need to figure out how to trust it. And I think if you look at healthcare in general, it is always indexed from a risk perspective on the highest possible bar for trust. So we're going to keep data as local and, and as close to our vest as possible, right? That will be some of the, look, it was great during, I say great, it was helpful during the pandemic when when the, the regulations were relaxed and consumed. Yeah. You know, Appropriate consumer-grade technology could be used for telehealth. That brought down so many barriers. Okay, so how do we build on that now, to your point, to kind of go to this next step? Because some of these, some of these little moves have already been made. And you know, when you look this week at um, some of the actions that were taken around making telehealth reimbursements uh, more permanent, right? And now cementing that as a as a care as a peer care option to everything else. That's going to start opening this up, which I think is really, I don't know, it's really exciting. Of course, it'll take time. And of course, it's hard, but hard things, hard things are worth doing. So great. Yeah, that's true. Hard things are worth doing. It's interesting that you brought up Expedia. The airline industry has been often used as an example of how consumerization kind of has evolved, right? Because at one point, you know, each airline had their own individual tracking system and et cetera. And then suddenly we opened up and created this like this environment. And this is many years ago. Are you envisioning that in healthcare that we're going to kind of go the same route as that? Like there might be some data standards that now we could open that up. I do think it starts with the patient data access APIs and other APIs that are in the, the mandates and that have been built over years by the you know, wonderful people who have toiled at HL7 and FIRE to build these things because that's that's the hope for me, at least w- the way I see it, because it, it does level the playing field in terms of now access. What we're still trying to get that spark, though, of just really widespread adoption, which I think then will, you know, of course, you have the chicken and the egg problem, right? Well, if no one's using the APIs. There's no real incentive to like support them or from a health system side or other care entity side, invest in using them. But I I think we're starting to see more and more use cases and and things come up where that's going to be useful. And again, today, when you look out at this future of these very blended and scalable delivery models that go from pure digital all the way over to pure face-to-face, it's going to be enabled by that so that the patient can make those right decisions alongside the care care providers that, that are going to be doing it with them. Interesting. That's really interesting. You know, we're talking a lot. It sounds like it's pie in the sky, kind of like big picture ideas here. What have you seen? Have you seen organizations that are slowly starting to evolve and starting to maybe free up that data in a way that they're starting to use it in interesting ways? Definitely. I mean, I think there's there's some 
early steps being taken. And some of it is, it's in a way it's brute forcing it, which is okay, because that's when you get started. Sometimes you need to do it that way and know that the you know interoperability won't be perfect, but you can mask it a bit, right? And, and if you're going to mask it for anybody, you have to mask it for the patient, even if it means there's a little more work on the back end, right? And it's not, you know, it's not maybe a hundred percent clear. It's like, you know, when whatever, ask Jeeves, the search engine launched and they had 300 <laughs> people sitting in a warehouse typing queries into Yahoo, right? <laughs> it, looked, it, it looked like to the user they were getting their, their search query answered. And But that's okay to get started because your goal isn't to prove the technology, right? Your goal is to prove that the experience is what the patient wants. And I think as you can index on like, how are we proving the experience versus getting all the tech to work, that then starts the, the, the ball, you know, everything rolling to me in the right direction. Hmm. Interesting. I, first of all, I didn't know Ask Jeeves. That's how it actually launched. So that's really great to think about. But in my mind, that's making me think that the Access Center, uh, or at least some sort of people-driven, maybe a hybrid model of technology and people together can start to cross that that chasm, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you know if you look at even what has happened during trying to get certain populations signed up for uh, COVID-19 vaccines, there's, of course, there were just pure tech issues of site overload. But the other one was just people needed help navigating, right? It was really this kind of concept in navigation. And I think if, you know, you can start to see as a health system, your goal and your role might be as that trusted navigator, regardless actually of where the patient might end up, because you might be able to steer them to something that's more convenient for them locally, maybe you have a relationship with that, right? So it's already part of a larger and new style referral network. But so I think that's kind of an interesting, right? There's just a lot of different ways to think about this problem in our, in our future. And to your point of blending it, I, I don't think we can just rely purely on on digital, right? That excludes a lot of the population for various reasons. Access really means you're going to have to take a broad holistic look at it. And, um, and, and I think that that, that can, will continue to be a challenge no matter what kind of technology or interoperability we come up with. Um, we'll hopefully just augment all that process and automate the, the not fun parts away, right? And the non-value-added parts away so that the really value-added parts are, are truly shining. Access with a capital A, right? This is yeah. like the bigger access, so to speak. I could just imagine, you know, right now, if you told any health system, what about your access center referring people to potentially a competitor? They probably wouldn't fly with that. But if we're doing it in the interest of what's best for the customer, we have to start thinking things a little bit differently. I'm not suggesting that's what you're you're indicating, but... Yeah, yeah, exactly. But But I do think, you know, this is all part of like, kind of game, game, game fearing, what, what, the what ifs, what could we do different? Like what would let us serve the, the population, especially as you look at the trends of, you know, aging and people, how, how much longer people are working and the, you know, the need to be more mobile throughout all your life and the ability to deal with chronic diseases now in a way that aren't, delib- you know, debilitating, but that are require sort of that constant navigation. And it'll be interesting to see who people kind of post pandemic patients really turn to for that. Because before, a lot of people relied on their primary care or a caregiver or someone else. And when you tip much more into the digital connected age, who takes that role? And and how will be, I think, some really fascinating uh, expectations and, and experiments to watch in, in the future. I think that's that's really fascinating. And if you design this all around what's best for that patient, 
I think that's where you're going to win because it's really about keeping that trusted relationship with your yes. your patient. That's really yes. what the, the end goal is here. Yeah, and and really understanding their their needs and preferences, right? In a way that that is meaningful, you know, really meaningful for them. That that where you know we definitely see customers uh, over the last couple of years really starting to index on that because it is a differentiator. Mm, I like it. Chris, every time I talk to you, it's like my mind gets blown a little bit in a good way. This is just really, it sounds really inspiring and, and like really makes you think about like what the future could be. People are listening and they may want to follow you online, maybe learn a little bit more about you and also Kairos. What are some ways they could reach out to you? Certainly one of the best ways is you can go find me on Kairos's, uh, you know website. It's K-Y-R-U-U-S.com. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, it's just at C-G-E-R-V-A-I-S. I just celebrated, I think this week, my 14th Twitter anniversary. Wow. Uh, which Twitter notified me of. Um, <laughs> of course, you can always find me on LinkedIn. If you want to find pictures of my dog, kids, and food, I'm on Instagram, but that's not as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's all interesting, but this conversation certainly has been uh, very interesting. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. Chris, thanks for uh, spending a little time with us today and sharing some big, big ideas. Uh, this has really fa- been a really good conversation. My pleasure, Chris. I really appreciate the time. All right, special thanks to another Chris for being on the show. If you listen to our end of the year show and uh, how many Chris's versus Reed's have been on the show, uh, this is just stacking in that favor. <laughs> Big fans of the folks over at Kairos and Chris and the work that they're doing around access and digital front door and all those types of things. So always excited to have, uh, have him on the show. Quick plug for the TPS report. Uh, If you have not subscribed, touchpoint.health is the website. You can subscribe there. And the reason I tell you that is because in that weekly newsletter, there are links to all the industry conferences that are coming up. So I would encourage you to subscribe so you can keep track of what's going on, whether that's webinars, in-person conferences, virtual conferences, hybrid conferences, et cetera. Really appreciate that. So rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. And let's turn to a couple of of, uh, recommendations. All right, Reed. I am going to recommend something that I never thought I would recommend. And if Steve Jobs were alive today, he probably would freak out that I'm recommending it. I just recently got an iPad and I decided I was going to make it into a productivity tool for me to use. And so I got myself an Apple Pencil to go along with it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I never thought I would like an Apple Pencil. Who wants a stylus, right? I mean, Steve Jobs says you should access everything with your fingers. But now with the iPad format as it is and some of the tools that I downloaded, including an an app that was, this is, I guess, a a side uh, recommendation to the Moleskin uh, company, the people that did the, the books, they have an app where you can actually take notes. This Apple Pencil is actually really a great tool. It allows you to kind of have the pinpoint where you could actually take notes. And by the way, if you write your notes pretty legibly, you could hit convert to text. It converts it to text. And you could draw diagrams. And I have another app that can take my hand-drawn diagrams and actually make them into actual diagrams. But this Apple Pencil is like really becoming something that I'm really enjoying. Now, the hard part is, I mean, it's magnetic. It kind of snaps to the outside of your iPad, right? But I I can imagine that you could potentially lose this if you're not careful. Overall, though, I'm going to recommend it. 
Nice. I like that. I like that. So you are recommending an Apple pencil. I am going to recommend an actual pencil. <laughs> yes, that is correct. I am recommending uh, a mechanical pencil specifically, uh, the Graph Gear 1000 automatic drafting pencil in the 0.9 millimeter lead. Oh. This is by Pentel. Uh, I guess that's how you say it. Anyway, it's a pretty popular line of pens and pencils that have been around forever. Uh, but a nice mechanical pencil, got a nice weight to it. You can get it in the uh, 0 0.3, 0 0.5, 0 0.7, and 0.9. I got 0.9. I use it actually for woodworking, like out in the garage and stuff like that, so I can make precise marks. Uh, so I got the little heavier lead uh, because I don't need, like, the teeny tiny, uh, like you would if you were drafting or something like that. So I use it actually for woodworking and, uh, it's great. It's good. It feels good in your hands. It's got a nice weight to it. And, uh, they kind of color code the lead and the pencils. So the 0.9 is actually, uh, got yellow accents on the, on the pencil. So it's expensive for a mechanical pencil or for a pencil. It's like 11 bucks, but, um, it's, uh, if you like writing with a pencil, it's a uh, good one to have. There you go. Yeah. I like it. Yep, yep. Well, very cool. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, telling a friend, rating, reviewing, subscribing. Uh, we certainly appreciate all the support. And we hope uh, everybody has a great week. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter, LinkedIn. Let us know if there's topics we should cover, guests we should interview, all that kind of fun stuff. And uh, like always, for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.